Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Uh, we're really looking forward to today's uh, celebration, and I am uh, specifically looking forward to hearing uh, Susie speak to us in just a moment. Um, as you know, we've been talking about this for a few weeks. Um, we have with us uh, today Susie Silk, who is the teaching pastor at Church of the City in New York City. And uh, we've gotten a great chance to just get to know each other a little bit, and uh, Britt has been uh, e- eagerly looking forward to this. Um, Susie is a co-author of a number of books, Kingdom Vision, Kingdom Values, I think, and the newest one that just came out, which is The God You Long For, which I was looking at that a bit, and I'm, I'm eager to kind of see how that all, how that all comes together. Uh, she is uh, the founder of something called The Hope Gathering in New York City, and uh, she has uh, been preparing for this, it feels like, all her life. I was looking at the educational piece, and she has a master's degree in uh, ancient Semitic languages uh, from the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. Did I get that right? Yeah, and she's currently working on her doctorate there. And I have said this a few times over the past few weeks. I have really personally enjoyed listening to Susie, because every time I do, I find something, I go, huh, I didn't know that. And the second thing I say is, huh, I'm going to preach that as my own. And I've done that a few times. You did a piece on, I think it was the Festival of Lights in the Old Testament that was just spectacular. I'm like, oh, I did not know that. So, so good. Um, I love the work that Church of the City, uh, John Tyson and Susie are doing there. So encouraging and what it looks like to reach the next generation. So I'm excited to have her with us. So Susie, if you'd come in Cape Cod Church, would you help me to welcome Pastor Susie Silk as she comes to speak to us today? Well, it's really good to be here with you today, and I was getting a little weepsy in worship, which is always a good way to start when you have to preach. Um, first of all, thank you, Pastor Ben. Thank you, for pa- thank you, Pastor Brittany. It was just really great uh, getting to know them last night and finding out a little bit about your church. And I have to say that um, I immediately said yes to the invitation to come here because it was Cape Cod. And <laughs> Cape Cod is a very special place in my heart. Um, in my family history. Speaking of Mother's Day, my mom, as a small girl, uh, grew up coming to Cape Cod every summer um, to Orleans for two weeks. Her father and mother brought her here, and then my mom continued the tradition. So I grew up every summer coming here for two weeks. Um, And then last year, got to bring my my newborn son to Cape Cod, so the fourth generation um, coming to Orleans. And so it's a tiny place. I remember the first time I brought my husband to this tiny little cottage, in Orleans. It's on Doan Road. It's near Nosset Beach. And he was like, this is the place that you all talk about as magical and amazing? And I was like, yes. <laughs> it's the most wonderful place in the world. Um, and, and so I guess I, I, want, I start with that story just to, to point out that for my family, it's almost a sacred place, right? Um, the rhythm of going to the same place every year, of encountering the Lord um, on the beach, walking the beach in, in Nosset Beach. And um, it's a place that roots me to family tradition and history. It's also a place where I've poured out my heart to the Lord so many times in really hard situations. And, um, and so though it's a small place, it's had a disproportionate impact on my life. 
And I say that because today I want to talk about small beginnings and how the kingdom of God actually begins in small places, in small ways, with people that are unexpected. And that's important for us to learn because we live in a culture where everything is supersized and instant. The bigger, the better. Remember a few years ago in New York City, there was an entire uproar because the mayor was thinking of outlawing extra large Diet Cokes at McDonald's. It's like, no, I deserve to get my supersized meal. And yet, this is what we live in. We live in bigger is better and all the time. We also believe that in social media, faster, bigger, um, building a following, marketing yourself, building a name for yourself. That's something I think especially people in their 20s and 30s that we wrestle with, that we struggle with. We're told we have to be important to matter. People have to know us. It's all about the reach that we have. And so in this country especially, we're encouraged to dream big, which can be beautiful, but can often be overwhelming. And so we dream big. We move, maybe we move to a big city. Maybe we get a big job. We hope that we're going to make it. We're going to build a name for ourselves. And yet in the process, we begin to look down upon or despise or even avoid what we perceive as small. And sometimes that can mean that we think that God sees us that way. And so we start to despise ourselves or other people. We've tried to make it big. We came up short. And so we think that God doesn't have a purpose for us anymore. Or maybe we look at our weaknesses and our shortcomings, the sins that we've repeated over and over again, the things that we struggle with, and we think, can God really use me? I'm not really that important. God uses important people. And if we're not careful, we sometimes put that lens on the scripture. And so we think, well, David was an important person. Deborah was an important woman, and I'm not like that. But there's this really encouraging verse in Zechariah 4.10. God speaks it to the people who are returning from exile. If you remember, um, the people of Israel had sinned in Judah and Israel, and so God had sent them into exile. And after about 70 years, God brings them back, and the people begin to rebuild Jerusalem. They start to rebuild the temple, and yet the current glory of this rebuilt temple is not like the ancient temple that they remembered of Solomon. And so God says these words to Zechariah. He says, Who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. So the people had begun to despise the work that they had done. They were returning to the promised land. There should have been excitement and joy. But yet they looked at what they were building and they thought, This is not that great. And they mourned. But God had a totally different perspective when they laid the first stone, when they laid that capstone. You see, they saw it as a day of small things. But this phrase, the day of small things, it was meant to make them think about this other phrase we see all throughout the scriptures, the day of great things, the time when God shows up and does something miraculous. And the Lord is telling them that in their human efforts, they're doing something that they look down on now, but it's actually preceding the great thing that God's going to do. Because what they did not realize, realize is that as they were rebuilding the temple, they were preparing the way for the Messiah to return. So what they see as small and nothing, God sees as the beginning of something great and miraculous that he's going to do. He sees that in them laying this chosen cornerstone, that it's a picture of when Jesus is going to come many generations later and walk in that temple. This idea of not despising small things, actually, Jesus also talks about this. 
In the beginning of his ministry, he gives a series of parables about what the kingdom of God is like. He recognized that the Jewish people at the time, that they were longing for God to establish his kingdom and to bring about the Davidic king, but they thought that the way that God would bring his kingdom was by overthrowing the Romans, would be like a military victory, the Messiah coming in on a war horse and defeating the enemy and taking back the kingdom. And yet Jesus needed to correct the way that they were seeing things, which often is how he needs to correct the way that we think, see things too. Because they were seeing that the king, they believed that the kingdom of God would come through power and might. And so he gives them this parable in Matthew 13. He says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all of the dough. Now, this is an interesting parable, right? Because he's saying that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Now, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's the size of a freckle. I had a friend in high school who was like giving me a prophetic word. So she took a mustard seed and she put it in a frame. So I actually have it in my house. It's tiny. And yet when a mustard seed grows, it becomes the largest tree or largest plant in the garden. It's about 10 feet tall. So you go from the size of a freckle to 10 feet tall. And so what Jesus is saying here is that it's not about the starting size, it's about the final size. It's about what the sun and the rain can do to the potential growth that's hidden inside the seed. So what looks like nothing, God can do unbelievable things through. What happens when this seed grows up? It actually changes the entire environment of the garden. It provides a home for the birds to rest and thrive in. Same thing with the second parable, yeast. It's tiny, it's small. If you've ever made a loaf of bread before, you know it's this tiny little packet that you put into a bunch of flour and water, and yet it changes the nature of the flour and the water. And what he's saying here is that when it's mixed in, this is the Greek word in crypto, so hidden, when this thing that you can't see that seems to look like nothing gets mixed into the dough, it changes the flour and the water. And it changes its environment because now this tiny thing enables you to feed a whole family. It produces 60 pounds, so much food from just a little bit of yeast. So Jesus, in these parables, he's trying to move his listeners away from thinking about the big, the powerful, the expected, which we often do too, the big, the powerful, expected, and to see instead with new eyes, to look for the small, the humble, the unexpected nature of the kingdom of God. And what's true of the kingdom was also true of the king. Because you see, Jesus did not come in an expected way. Micah 5, 2 prophesies about the Messiah. It says, You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler. So Jesus will come from one of the smallest clans, a place no one is expecting him to show up. Later on, when he grows up in Nazareth, one of his later disciples is famous for saying, Can anything good come from Nazareth? So he's born in a tiny place. He grows up in the backwaters of the Galilee, and yet he's the promised Messiah. 
Because you see, the kingdom of God begins small and unseen. So if we're looking for the big and the powerful, if we're looking for the influential and the known, then we will miss the beginnings of the kingdom of God. He gives us this parable to show us what the kingdom is like and how it grows and how it operates. And you see, this is good news for us today. Because when we feel weary, when we're discouraged that we've had to start over again, maybe even after a pandemic, when our ministries are not what we had hoped, when we're serving in secret, when we feel like we have nothing to offer, when we feel ill-equipped or new to faith or too late to the party or insignificant, well, those are the situations that God loves to move in. God loves to begin with the small and the unseen. Isaiah 53 famously says that the Messiah will be despised and rejected. So when you're despised, when you're rejected, when you're forgotten, when you're unseen, when you're small, God loves to work then. And so the question we have to ask ourselves today is what if you are despising the very thing that God is rejoicing in? What if your small acts of faith to read the Bible every day, just a couple minutes a day, and you think, this is really nothing, but it's the most I can do. What if God is rejoicing in that and you're despising it? What if the neighbor that you're praying for fervently, you think, I don't know if they're ever gonna come to church. Is this really worth it? What if God is rejoicing because he sees you're laying the cornerstone in their life? What if you think nothing's happening and it's the beginning of God bringing revival? Now, if this feels a little far-fetched, I wanna spend the rest of our time together telling you a series of stories about small people and small places, places where you'd never expect revival to break out. Because I wanna build some evidence to show you that this is true and this is a principle that the Lord uses in building his kingdom. So first, let's look at Obed-Edom. Who knows who Obed-Edom is? Great, that's the right answer. Nobody except me normally knows that in a room. He's my favorite character in the Bible. I first was introduced to him in high school youth group. Um, so Obed-Edom, he appears in 2 Samuel 6, and we read the story. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into, well, what will become Jerusalem. And this is that famous story of a person reaches out, touches the Ark, and they die. And so David gets really worried. And so he puts the Ark down, says he was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So this is Obed-Edom. He's a little-known, unimportant man with actually a really sad name. It means like, I'm the slave of our enemies. And he just happened to be near where the Ark fell on the ground, and he was willing to take in God's dangerous, holy presence. And what David had forgotten about how to handle a holy God and how to be honorable, Obed-Edom seems to get right. Because for three months, 
The Ark of the Covenant, i.e. the presence of God, that fire comes up out of this box, is in his living room. I love to picture that, just Obadidim, like in a rocking chair, the presence of God just right there. But he, he understands how to handle the presence of God. He knows how to honor the Lord. And so he fears and he honors the Lord and he recognizes God's holiness and then God blesses him because of that. And then King David gets jealous. Well, I want the presence of God in my city. I want some blessing. And so then David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And this is the famous scene of him like making sacrifices every six feet, right? They'd walk six steps and then he offers a sacrifice. He brings it in with rejoicing. This is the story of like David being more undignified than this and dancing around in a loincloth. And like, and then he builds it. He starts to set apart all these things to build a temple for the Lord. And he has like presence and worship and praise. And it leads to spiritual revival at that time. All throughout history, the Jewish people would look back to the time of David as like, that was a man after God's own heart. Well, David actually didn't start that way. He was scared of the Lord. But one man honored the Lord's presence. No one remembers him, but Obed-Edom, because of his faithfulness in the presence of God, caused King David to be jealous, and the entire nation was changed. So the lesson from this is that an unknown man who's perceived as having no influence can actually change an entire nation if he honors the Lord. Next story. Let's think about those 12 disciples. They were 12 young men from the Galilee area. Like I said, Galilee was observant, but it wasn't influential in Israel. These men were probably in their late teens, early 20s. Um, the reason that Jesus has to ask them to follow him is because no other rabbi had accepted them. So they had gone through studying and training, and then they had to take on the trade of their family. They were an assortment of fishermen and other trades. They weren't influential in any way. And yet Jesus builds his ministry upon these 12 men and some other followers, some women as well. And yet 12 or 15 people change world history. If you think about it, when Jesus ascends after his resurrection, how many people were there? 300 probably more people in this room than that. And yet 300 people who then gets whittled down to 120 on the day of Pentecost, those 120 people are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and revival breaks out. Acts 1 and 2, read this. A group numbering about 120. And when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. And then, as you know, they go out, they start to speak. Peter gives this amazing message, and it says, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So we go from 100, well, we go from 12 to about 120 who are still faithful to Jesus after he's ascended. And yet those 120 people filled with the Holy Spirit leads to 3,000 people in one day believing the gospel message, and those people change the entire world. World history is shaped by that group of people, less than are in this room right now. And so the lesson is, is that 
a group of people filled with the Holy Spirit, doesn't matter how many of them there are, they can change world history. That's the mustard seed, the sun and the rain, the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord working through somebody saying, Lord, I will honor you and trust you. Now, I could tell you a lot of different stories of revival over the years. The Businessmen's Revival in New York City, the Great Awakenings, but I just want to tell you about a few that you might not know about. So if we jump forward in time, the year is 1727. There's a tiny village called Hearn Hut. I think we have a map for this. It's two miles from Bethelsdorf, which is a town on the eastern border of Germany. There were several hundred Protestant refugees who had come from the country of Moravia, and they had settled in this little place called Hearn Hut. And yet they begin to pray together. And on August 13th, 1727, in the midst of the prayer gathering, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them, kind of like we read about in the story of Pentecost, just gives them this passion for the Lord. They're weeping, they're confessing their sins. They begin a 24-7 prayer movement. And so what happens is a couple hundred political refugees empowered by the Spirit, what happens, they sustain a hundred years of unending prayer. This little group says, we're going to pray every hour of every day. And they hand that down to their children who hand it down to their children. And what comes out of this Moravian revival is the modern missions movement. This little village, they sold themselves into slavery to get to the new world, to bring the gospel across the globe to nations that had never heard about Jesus before. Count Zinzendorf, who is the leader of this town, he wrote this in May 8, 1760. He said, did you suppose in the beginning that the Savior would do as much as we now really see in the various Moravian settlements amongst the children of God of other denominations and among the heathen? I only entreated him a few of the first fruits of the latter, but there are now thousands of them. He had just asked that his small town would get along. He had just suggested that they start to pray so that there would be some unity. But when they sought the presence of the Lord faithfully, God used them to change the world. Jumping forward in time again, in 1949, in an archipelago off the coast of northwest Scotland, a tiny group of islands, there were two women in their 80s, Peggy and Christine Smith. One was blind, the other was crippled. They couldn't even make it to church. <clears throat> and yet they were gripped with a need to pray for their community. So these two women would wake up and pray from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. in the morning on Tuesday and Friday evenings. They did this for a long time. One night, they got a vision of the church crowded with young people. And so they invited the church pastor and some elders to join them in prayer on those two nights each week. One of these evenings, the Spirit of the Lord just fell in power upon the pastors, and they were gripped with a need to repent and to worship. And soon what happened is that the Holy Spirit began to move in their whole community. And so they invited a preacher named Duncan Campbell to speak, and soon revival broke out all over the islands, Young people and others came to faith. There were stories of people walking down the street and falling on their knees in worship. People coming out of bars, drunk, and suddenly thinking they had to go to church. And for three straight years, there was a palpable sense of the presence of God, and it spread all throughout the islands. 
This was just two women, two elderly women, one blind, one crippled, who felt the need to pray. And so a few people, no matter their age or health or wealth, can change a community and a nation when God hears their prayers. David Fitch wrote this, don't despise your small prayer gatherings. Every major revival has its origins with a small band of intercessors faithfully crying out. Small gatherings precede big breakthroughs. When we gather to worship and pray, regardless of the size, we convene the very court of heaven on earth. Our prayer gatherings are the most important and powerful gatherings in our city. This was true with the businessmen's revival. It was just one man walking around the streets of New York City in the 1800s who just said, you know what, I'm just going to host a prayer gathering from 12 to 1, Monday through Friday, whoever can come. The first gathering, there's only a few people. The next day, the room started to be filled. And suddenly, all of Wall Street, all of Wall Street would shut down every day from 12 to 1 so all of the businessmen could leave their offices and pray. One man starting a small prayer gathering and it led to one of the great awakenings in the Northeast. Okay, one last story before we tie this up. In 1970, there was a 19-year-old pre-med student who was sent by his father to the U.S. from Bolivia. And while he was in the U.S., he heard about this woman, Kathy Kuhlman, who was giving these rallies, revivals. Think about it. It's the 1970s, right? You had Billy Graham crusades. You had these big events um, focused on evangelism. And so he he hears about it, and he decides to go. And he comes to faith at the rally. He's like, I believe Jesus is real. The next week, he shows up again, and this time the stadium's full, so he can't get inside. But he's like, oh, this message is so important. There's all these people in the parking lot who can't get into the Kathy Coleman rally. So he finds a chair, he stands up on the chair, and he just says exactly what she had said the previous week. He just gives the gospel message. And more people come to faith in the parking lot than inside the stadium. And so Kathy Coleman hears about it, and she's like, who is this person? This is amazing. So he begins to preach in front of thousands, and God begins to give him the gift of healing. Well, soon he returns to Bolivia. Yes, that country that most of us can't find on a map. I couldn't find it on the map until I married my husband, who's from Bolivia, or unless I sung that old Animaniac song. That told me every single place in South America. So he soon returns to Bolivia. It was a place that was historically Catholic, but it didn't really know the gospel because it was cultural and no one was really permitted to read the Bible in their own language. And so this man, Julio Rabal, begins to lead a few friends to Jesus, some just teenagers like him. And then soon he finds out that one of his friend's fathers is sick, and so he prays for the Lord to heal him, and the man is healed. And it turns out that man works for somebody else in the government and knows somebody else who needs healing, and so he soon prays for him, and that leads to another one until finally the president of Bolivia hears about this teenager who's walking around and able to heal people. And so the president asks him into his office and says, my wife is sick, and you pray for her. And the president's wife is healed. And he says to Julio, I'll give you whatever you want. Thank you. And Julio says, I want your biggest stadium, and I want radio time for two weeks beforehand. And two weeks later, 
30,000 people, I think we have a picture, fill the stadium and another 15,000 are outside. Six months later, the Bolivian Evangelical Church is born. Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. There was no church. They didn't have a space to meet. No one had prepared for this. So thousands begin to gather in parks every night. Immediately, 300 are baptized. And soon, he has a whole church and he has no leaders. So Julio begins to mentor 12 teenagers, one of whom was my mother-in-law. And what would happen is every day after school, they would meet. Julio would give them a little message to preach. They'd memorize it, and they'd each be assigned to a different park in La Paz in the capital. And so my mother-in-law, as a teenager, would go out into a park and then would preach to hundreds or thousands. And she had just become a believer herself. Revival broke out, and it changed the country. And now there are churches all over Bolivia and the world because of that movement of teenagers. You see, God can use one teenager to change an entire nation. He can use 12 teenagers who've just come to faith to lead thousands in repentance. Because God chooses the small and the weak and the unknown people and places for his purposes. And why does he do that? Because then the results aren't about us. They're not about human effort, but about the power of God, about his love, about his spirit moving. This is what 1 Corinthians 1 says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The weak, the foolish, the lowly, the despised, the things that are even not yet. That's what the Lord chooses. That's why he says to Zechariah, who dares despise the day of small things? Who dares despise it? You don't even know how powerful I am. You don't even know what I can do with a mustard seed, what I can do with some yeast, what I can do with two women who are elderly, what I can do with a teenage man. You don't even know what I can do. Don't despise that. I'm rejoicing in it. The eyes of the Lord search throughout the earth for one who is turned to him. For one, that's all he needs. He doesn't need a big following. He doesn't need a big building. He doesn't need flashy lights. He doesn't need any of that. He needs someone whose heart is turned to him. He needs Obadidams who pursue his presence. He needs Peggy and Christine Smith who pray in the middle of the night. He needs Julio Rabals who say, I don't know much, but I can tell you that he saved me. That's all he's looking for. And so today I'm inviting you to have a new perspective. To not despise, but to rejoice. What if you chose to rejoice? What if you really believed that God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised? How would that change how you lived? And so I want to invite us to have a new perspective. First, a new perspective on ourselves. Too often we have the wrong view of ourselves. We buy into the lies of our culture. 
We think that we need to be big or powerful or influential or perfect or not have that sin anymore or not have that pain in our past. And so we discount ourselves from being part of the move of God or part of bringing God's kingdom. But Obed-Edom was a nobody with a terrible name, and yet he stewarded the presence of God. Julio Rabal was a new, teen, new believer. Peggy and Christine Smith had disabilities, and yet none of them discounted themselves. They just stewarded the presence of God. Maybe you need a new perspective on yourself. And with that, maybe you need a new perspective on what you're doing and where you're building. Because again, too often we have a distorted view about where we work and where we live and where we're attempting to build a place for God. We think we need to live in an influential place or work in an influential industry or come from a particular pedigree, and yet then we discount the small beginnings in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families. I think that we buy into the lie that God is a strategic businessman, that he makes investments in the ones that will most pay off the way that we would but that's not how he works. Because Hernhut was a tiny village full of refugees, and yet it led to the Moravian revival. The Hebrides are a group of islands very few of us could ever find on a map again. The Galilee was the backwoods of the Roman Empire, and yet God did not despise those places because he found faithful prayer warriors there. And so the questions we should ask ourselves is, what if I didn't despise the work of God in my life? What if instead I rejoiced in every small step of renewal, in every breakthrough, in every new practice, in every spiritual discipline? What if I began to believe that God could bring revival, could bring his kingdom in me and through me? What if I thought that God could bring his kingdom in my neighborhood, in my family, in my workplace if I turn to him? What if I began to see it that way? I know that today we're honoring mothers, and some of us did have mothers that taught us hymns and scripture. Some of us did not. My mother-in-law did not have that background. She was the first believer in her family. She led her own mother to the Lord. but the Lord gives some staggering promises to us when we turn to him. He says he blesses to a thousand generations those who are faithful to him, who turn to him. Sometimes your life is the beginning of generational renewal in your family. Maybe you didn't come from the family that you wanted, but God can write a new legacy through you. My mother-in-law broke off so much in her family all of her grandkids who are old enough know Jesus. All of her children knew Jesus because she took the Lord's promises seriously. Maybe you need a new perspective on yourself and what you're doing. But secondly, maybe you need a new perspective on other people and other places. We often buy into the hierarchy of our culture and we discount or overlook certain people the people that serve us food, that take out the trash, the loud teenagers on our street, the person with a disability. 
because we've started to think that only big people, influential people, people who have it all together can shape culture. But what if we're overlooking the very people that God's gonna bring revival through? What if you sharing the gospel with them led to revival in their community or in your community? And likewise, sometimes we despise or look down on what other people are doing and where they're building. We discount certain places. This is something I often have to say in New York City. We've got big egos in New York. And I often remind people, don't assume God's gonna use New York City to change the country. Don't assume that it's your industry that's gonna change the country. Don't assume that that's where revival is gonna break out. Because if we look at history, it's the Hernhuts, it's the Hebrides, it's the La Paz, it's the Galilees, it's the places that nobody can find on a map where God does something unbelievable. So let us not think even that because we live in the US, we somehow have a corner on the market. We need to begin to pray and rejoice and hunger for revival in such a way that we don't care where it happens, we just really want it to happen. We don't care if we get to be a part of it in the beginning because we just really want it to happen. What if we didn't despise or discount the work of God in others' lives? What if we believed that each person we met had the potential to be used by God to bring about his kingdom, to bring revival in our generation? And what if we just thought, I just want to spur them on? Evan Roberts wrote this of the 1904 Welsh revival. Many who are now silent Christians, negative Christians, Christians whose belief means little to them and nothing to anyone else will lead the movement. He was so convinced that when the Holy Spirit came, it changes everything. And so the person we would not expect to lead ends up leading because they're full of the power of the Holy Spirit. No one expected Peter to have that level of boldness. He had just rejected Jesus three times because a servant girl asked him if he was associated with Jesus. And yet when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he preaches boldly and 3,000 people come to know Jesus. What if we didn't despise other places? What if we prayed and believed that in every town where there are Christians, that revival could begin? Doesn't matter how many Christians there were, doesn't matter how big that church is, doesn't even totally matter what their theology is on specific issues. We just prayed and believed that the gospel could take root in their hearts and could change their community. What if the greatest joy of your life was seeing someone else bring the kingdom? Here's the thing, friends. I believe that when we begin to rejoice in the small, that it'll change us. That when we begin to see people like this, it will change the way that we approach them. It'll change the way we pray. Because you'll begin to see in every situation in your life a chance for new life and revival. You'll begin to see each person that you interact with as somebody who could not only come to know Jesus, but someone who could be used mightily in the kingdom. You would see the possibility of resurrection, overcoming unstoppable life in places that seem dead right now. What if the next Hebrides revival happened here in Cape Cod? What if people generations from now thought that Cape Cod Church was named for the revival, not the place that the revival had broken out? 
What if this group of people committed to praying and believing that God could change the tide of this generation, that we didn't have to lose teenagers to depression, to addiction, to social media? What if we believed that the great awakenings of the past could happen now? What if we believed that after the pandemic, this was the best time for God to move, the best time for God to reverse everything for the gospel? We could choose to live like that. That's actually how Jesus invites us to follow after him. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. He used 12 fishermen, nobodies, to change the entire world. He will do it again. He wants to do it again. He loves to do new things like this. It could change us. What if the next Julio Rabal works at the local McDonald's? What if the next Peggy and Christine Smith are living in your local retirement home? What if the next praying woman who prays in revival is the one who will pick up diapers next week? God loves to use the lowly, the despised, the rejected, the unseen, those who are not yet to change the kingdom. And what if you are the next Obed-Edom, who through cultivating and welcoming the presence of God bring spiritual revival to this place, to the state, to the region, to the nation. Second Chronicles 16, 19, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Let's ask that the Lord finds us faithful and let's ask that the Lord gives us his eyes for the world. As the worship team comes back up, I want to invite us to pray. If you want new eyes this morning, the Lord wants to give those to you. If you want him to see you and strengthen you today for his work and his calling in your life, the Lord wants to do that. And so with every eye closed and every head bowed, let me just lead us in some prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for who you are. That you were a man of sorrows familiar with suffering, that you were despised and rejected, that you were born in a place that nobody really knew or cared about. Thank you, Jesus, that you modeled for us what it looks like to live a life of dependence upon you. And Jesus, we ask right now that you would use um, these scriptures, these words, your word, to do something new in our hearts. That you'd awaken us to possibility. That you'd awaken us to how your kingdom works. Lord, I believe that right now, there are men and women in this sanctuary who want to give their whole life to you. We want to have a passion for you. And so, Lord, I I pray for them right now. I ask that you give them courage, give them boldness, fill them with a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit, just a fresh sense of anointing. The Holy Spirit would move in them in such a way that they would hunger to be in your presence. They would love the scriptures. They would have a boldness in evangelism.
And Lord, I ask that you would give this church new eyes to see their community. Would you begin a work today that leads to your kingdom breaking out in Cape Cod, to the gospel going forth, Lord? That when people show up for diapers, they get so much more than that. When people happen to bump into somebody at a coffee shop, they get so much more than that. When someone happens to go to work with someone who goes to Cape Cod Church, that they would get so much more than that. Jesus, we don't want to just hear of the things that you've done in the past. We want to see them in our lifetime. We don't want to just hear about your miracles in the past. We believe you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so you desire the same things now to bring your kingdom, to make this piece of earth look just like heaven. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do that. Come, come move in power. Shake the walls of our heart. Change the way that we see ourselves. Give us a love for you, Jesus. Give us a passion for you that we would give everything and anything just to welcome your presence in our life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 